Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. Every metaphor eventually breaks down. Every comparison ultimately fails. And yet it's useful to us as believers, to have these metaphors, these analogies. Jesus, last week, gave us several metaphors to think about. When it comes to the Christian life, one of the most common metaphors that we turn to is the metaphor of walking. We saw it already in our lectionary reading earlier. In Colossians 2, we are enjoined, so walk in we talk about what it means to follow Christ, we will often talk about our Christian walk. How is that walk? Are you walking faithfully? But as I say, every metaphor breaks down. And that idea of walking, as helpful as it can be, sometimes can be unhelpful too. Sometimes we get the idea that, that we begin our journey in Christ with a great need for his grace, that he meets that need, and now it's up to us to walk to progress forward, to carry on after the fact, we forget that we continue to need his grace, that the same thing that brought us to the cross in the first place continues to bring us again and again to the cross. I'm not suggesting that we stop using the metaphor of walking. The Bible uses it. I think it's okay. But there are other metaphors that can help us, that can supplement that understanding of what it means to move forward in Christ. Here in our text, we see a different kind of gesture that conveys the same thing. It's kneeling. The most progress you will make in your life in Christ will be made on your knees. When you hear me say that, you will make the most progress in your Christian life on your knees, it sounds like what I'm saying is you will make it in prayer. And that's true. But you have to remember that that our idea of the postures of prayer is a little bit different than what we find in Scripture. When people pray in Scripture, oftentimes they do it standing. Sometimes they do it with, with arms lifted up. When we think of kneeling, we think of prayer. But when they thought of kneeling, it was a gesture that meant something a little bit different. It meant what we see it meaning here in our text. It is bowing oneself down before a greater authority. Here we see a man come to Jesus and kneeling before him. A man who has authority, kneeling before a greater authority, acknowledging the authority of Jesus over him, kneeling in faith. Matthew, once again, here gives us what you might think of as like a cluster or a series of signs. Throughout chapter 8 and chapter 9, he's been doing this. In between Jesus' teaching, Matthew gives us a record of all of the miracles, the signs, the wonders that he performs that testify to the authority of the message that he's teaching. And so we get a series here. If you're keeping track in Matthew 8 and 9, what we see here are miracles 7, 8, and 9. If you go back and count, you'll see, although one of those is actually a cluster of miracles. So we count all of them together, and we'll see another cluster later on. But here we get this series of Jesus performing miraculous signs. As people come to Jesus in faith, as they kneel 
through his divine authority and his kingship, he is restoring the unclean, he is raising the dead, he is giving sight to the blind. These are all events that you would read about in the other synoptic gospels as well, but Matthew tells the stories differently. Matthew's version is leaner. It's more distilled than the others. The others give you a lot more detail, a lot more of the the sort of twists and turns of the narrative. Matthew zooms way out. He gives it to you almost as a thumbnail. When an author does that, when he summarizes events that he could go into greater detail about, generally speaking, what you're trying to do is give the big picture. Uh, You're you're taking the, the, the messy complication of history And you're telling it in such a way that that one key thing rises to the surface. And I think that's what Matthew is doing here. And yet there are some fascinating details that he includes if you're paying attention. For one thing, if you look at our text, it's really striking how important the idea of touch is here. We've already seen Jesus speaking healing into existence. Like Jesus saying things, and then it happens, and that manifests his authority. But here, there's a real focus on on touching Jesus, on Jesus touching people in order to heal. The ruler comes to Jesus, whose daughter has died, and says, if you would just touch her, if you would lay your hand on her, she will live. His hope is tied up in the idea of the touch of Jesus. The woman who comes to him to touch his garment, her hope is that if she just touches that, not even his flesh, but just his garment, just to make that physical contact would be enough. And as we see Jesus healing, he heals here through touch. He does lay on hands. He does touch the blind men so they receive their sight. He does take the the, the girl who has died and raise her to life. That touch is important. Matthew is showing us that whatever Jesus touches, or whatever touches Jesus, is made whole. If you are defiled, when you touch Jesus, you don't defile him. When you touch Jesus, you are made clean. That is the power of his authority. There's another detail here that Matthew emphasizes, which is the role of faith in what's taking place here. Obviously, faith has been a part of healing before, but here, I think, over and over again, we're we're sort of flagging moments where Jesus specifically acknowledges that it is the faith of the people that, that matters, that they come to him in faith. They come believing in his authority. In other words, there's no magic here. It's not that if any random person, no matter what they believe, happens to come into physical contact with the fringe on Jesus' garment, that person will be made whole. That's not what's happening. What's happening is who they believe he is, who they acknowledge him to be. It is their faith in him that matters, and it's not just any faith. They're not healed because they just have faith, period because they're religious people, because despite all the mystery, they just want to believe. It is specifically what they believe about him that matters. The fact that he has come as the Messiah, as the king, and they acknowledge it. They kneel to him physically, verbally. They acknowledge he is the one who has the power to do this. 
And of course, in that emphasis on faith, we have reinforced for us the purpose of the miracles. Because again, the reason why Jesus is working these signs is isn't, it isn't that, that like the hallmark of the true church is that, that everyone who truly believes becomes a sort of magic maker, that we're all suddenly capable of doing wondrous signs. The signs actually have a purpose. There's a reason why he's doing these signs, and there's a reason why it's these signs and not other ones. They mean something. They testify. Their purpose is to testify that he is the Messiah, that he is the one who does the things that the prophet said the Messiah would have the power to do. He does specific things that the prophets prophesied about, and these things testify that he is the king, that the kingdom is here, that he possesses, again, as Colossians 2 puts it, all rule and authority. That's the connection here. Jesus announces himself. He comes as king. As people receive him in faith, they are made whole. The ruler who kneels before Jesus, we don't learn this from Matthew, but we learn it from the other Gospels. He's a specific kind of ruler. He's a ruler of the synagogue. He's a religious authority. We actually know his name from the other Gospel writers, Jairus. He is a ruler of the synagogue, and therefore he himself is a man who possesses authority. And that authoritative man kneels before Jesus. As he does this, he gives us a picture of true authority, of good authority. Like the Roman centurion that we saw in chapter 8, here is an authority who knows when to kneel before the grantor of all authority. Here's a man who, in his need, despite how hopeless his situation seems to be, he recognizes that he himself does not have the power to deliver his daughter, but that Jesus does. And he goes to him and he kneels to him. Good authority submits to Christ's higher authority. The, restore, the, the authority that we ought to respect the authority that we should admire, the authority that we should reverence and long for is authority that knows where power comes from and kneels before Christ. But there are bad authorities too. This man is a ruler in the synagogue, but he's unique in that respect. We've encountered Pharisees before, men with influence and authority in their religious world. Most of them do not do what this man does. Most of them do not kneel before Christ. Instead, they criticize him. They seek to undermine his authority. They do possess power, but they don't use that power as they should. They do not kneel when they ought to kneel. So in this man's gesture, we see modeled for us how authority is meant to be used and how authority is all too often abused. There's another interesting moment of kneeling. It's not quite spelled out by Matthew, but when the woman comes to him, legend attributes a name to her, Veronica. When Veronica comes and seeks healing from Jesus, there are a lot of little details that uh, add, I don't know, interest to this story. One of them is Matthew mentions how many years she's been afflicted uh, for 12 years. 
He doesn't tell us, though, the age of Jairus' daughter, but her age is also 12 years. There's a reason why these stories are connected the way that they are, why one is nested within the other, and, and the commonality between these two daughters, because indeed they are two daughters, because Christ sees both of them in that light. But even the idea of the, the, the way that she intends to touch him is significant. We may not appreciate the significance, why it's the fringe of his garment in particular that she hopes to touch here. Why not the collar? Why not the sleeve? Why the fringe specifically? Well, in Numbers 15, starting in verse 38, you'll read instructions from God, sartorial instructions, how the people of God are meant to dress And one of the things God tells the Israelites is they should wear a tassel on the four corners of their garments. And these little tassels serve the same purpose that uh, for people of my generation, tying string around your finger used to do, or for modern civilized people, setting a reminder on your phone used to do. It is meant to remind you to do something important. These tassels are there so that you can look at them And remember all the commandments of the Lord to do them, not to follow after your own heart and your own eyes. So everywhere you go, this this righteously dressed man is going to run into these tassels, and they're going to remind him to do righteousness, to do what God has commanded. And Jesus is dressed this way. We've seen Jesus eats with sinners. He doesn't separate from them. When others are fasting, Jesus is feasting. But don't think that Jesus is somehow not observant because he is clearly wearing what Numbers 15 instructs people to wear, those reminders of the need, the importance of righteousness. And it's not by accident that it's this part of his garment, the one that symbolizes righteousness, that she imagines touching it would make her whole. Before we began our series on Matthew, we were looking at Zechariah. You may remember in Zechariah chapter 8, there's a a beautiful vision of the future in which all the nations will turn to the people of Israel and, and, and basically ask for guidance. Show us where God is. Lead us to him. We want to go to God. If you look in Zechariah 8, In verse 23, you'll read these words. Thus says the Lord of hosts, In those days, ten men from the nations of every tongue shall take hold of the robe of a Jew, saying, Let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. You take those things together and you see in this moment something really significant taking place. That fringe, that reminder to live righteously, she touches that And that righteousness, as it were, is counted to her. Not a righteousness of her own. She is unclean. She is alienated from the rest of her society because of her condition, per Leviticus 15, in the same way that the leper was. She's in a similar situation to him. And yet, to touch that symbol of the righteousness of Jesus would make her whole, would make her clean. Then other theologians say that in this gesture, not only is there that significance, but also it it puts us in mind of those words of Zechariah. She's clinging to his robe. She's clinging to his robe in the same way that the nations will. 
taking hold of the robe of a Jew, saying, let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. That in the Messianic age, the nations will cling to the robe of righteousness to enter into the presence of God. As we read about the healing of this woman, the raising of the dead of Jairus' daughter, and even the healing of those blind men, it's important as we reflect on those instances that we identify with the right characters in the story. All too often, I think, we read about Jesus' mighty works and we put ourselves in his shoes. We imagine ourselves doing what he does. What we need to do is put ourselves in their shoes. Imagine ourselves in their position, receiving from him what they receive. We identify with these two daughters, the unclean daughter and the dead daughter. We identify with these two blind sons. We see that we need what they needed and that it can only come from Christ. We need what they needed and we can only get it where they got it. The restoration that we need, we who are unclean, we who are dead in our sins, we who are spiritually blind, the wholeness that we long for as human beings can only come to us in Jesus through faith. There is no other way of wholeness. What that means is, The only hope for us as sinners is to kneel in faith before him. To kneel in faith before him. Not only to kneel in faith before him, though, but also to keep kneeling. To stay on our knees. To move forward on our knees. Think about everything that you gain in Christ through faith. Everything that is restored to you through faith. Jesus has the authority to give everything that he's promised to give, to do everything that he's promised to do. Reflect on the gifts that are ours through faith in him. Spiritual wholeness. He gives us spiritual wholeness. As human beings trapped under the dominion of sin, all we knew before Christ was brokenness. All we knew before him was meaninglessness, purposelessness. All we knew before him was either an honest despair or a dishonest coping. And now in Christ, we can be whole spiritually. In Christ, we can have spiritual life. Or once there was a deadness to our hearts. He makes us alive through the power of his spirit. Through his love, he awakens us so that we love him too in response. We were blind before Jesus. It's not just that we didn't have what he had promised. It's that we didn't see what we didn't have. That we looked upon ourselves and we thought we were good. We thought we saw the world rightly, but we were wrong. Jesus, through grace, restores true sight to us. These are wonderful things for us 
to meditate on, to reflect on, to recognize we're not just like these people in their need, but we are also like them in their wholeness. We are like them in what they receive from Jesus. And yet, and yet, there is a limit. You have received spiritual wholeness through faith in Jesus Christ, but you're not wholly there yet. You have received spiritual life, and yet within you a war rages, and oftentimes it seems as if the grip of death is stronger. You have received spiritual sight from him, and yet you're constantly finding that your eyes have deceived you. You're constantly discovering that you weren't seeing things as clearly as you should. You have received these things from him, but you do not possess them in perfection, not yet, not in this life. The gifts that we've received from him, we've received as a kind of foretaste of all the fullness that is to come. One of the things I always loved as a child when Christmas was approaching was negotiating with my mom on the reception of early gifts. I appreciated holiday traditions. My mom was a big believer in in Christmas traditions, and I loved them so much I created new ones. Uh, The tradition of early presents was one that I myself innovated, and uh, I didn't leave it there. I added on to it. It turns out there were actually layers of early presents that, that... Christmas was always approached almost with a long series of early presents, you know, each grander than the other, so that one epic Christmas I had received all of my presents early and I got on Christmas Day a bunch of IOU notes from my mother and I thought, you, sir, have mastered Christmas. Those gifts, those early gifts, the funny thing about them is they never satisfied Like, she thought that she was going to give me an early gift, and I would then wait patiently for all the rest. That's not what happens. All they did was whet my appetite. They just made me think of the gifts that I didn't have and want to have them. And oftentimes, that's how these graces are for us. In this life, we taste a little bit of them, but we're not satisfied. We want more. We want more. And that's not a bad thing for us to desire. They're meant to encourage us to want more. The taste of grace is meant to make us long for the fullness of grace that is to come. It is what it is there for. It is the guarantee. In the same way that we speak of the Holy Spirit sealing us until the day when all of the promises of God's covenant are fulfilled to God's people, these this life manifestations of wholeness are a kind of seal a kind of promise that, yes, I will make you fully whole. These incomplete graces, though, can be discouraging to us. Oftentimes, instead of seeing what we do have in Christ, we see what we do not yet possess. And we imagine that that speaks the final word over us. We don't understand why we don't have those things that haven't yet been given to us. They lead us to doubt. And when you find yourself in that situation, the answer is really simple. It's just keep kneeling. All too often, we begin our life in Christ 
clearly focused on the fact that we need him. And there's nothing that we have that we need his grace. But then as we progress, we start looking at ourselves, looking at our accomplishments, looking at what we've done, and we tell ourselves that our standing in him is somehow reflected in, in the good things that we've done, the good gifts that we possess, the good graces that we see manifested in our lives, and that his displeasure with us, on the other hand, is manifested in all the absences. And if what we focus on is the absences, we begin to wonder if he's really with us at all. Don't be discouraged by your incomplete sanctification. That's probably not a catchy phrase. And I imagine in the dark night of the soul, you won't hear those words echoing back to you as you anguish before the, the sense that you have been abandoned by God. You won't hear my voice saying, don't be discouraged by your incomplete sanctification. And yet, if you understood those words, they would be very encouraging. If you look at the Westminster Standards in the chapter on sanctification, probably the most important thing you will find there is that in this life, your sanctification will always be incomplete. That if you're going to judge Christ's love for you based on your sanctification, you will always be misled because by design, it will always be incomplete. Don't be discouraged by something that's there by design. Something that you were warned in the owner's manual is a feature, not a bug. And don't fear losing Christ's grace because you continue to struggle. It is so easy to be here when you're not struggling. It is so easy to be with God's people when everything is going good. It is so easy to be in church when you don't need it. But when we struggle, it becomes difficult. It becomes hard because we lie to ourselves. We say, I can't be around all those people who aren't struggling while I'm struggling not realizing that all of us have our struggles. We start to believe that because we struggle, somehow we aren't included, don't belong. Don't fear that you've lost Christ's grace because you continue to struggle. You will continue to struggle. You know what's interesting to me about the healing of the blind men? And I think it's emphasized by the way Matthew tells it in particular, that the ending point, Jesus heals these men, he restores their sight, and then he says to them, and he says it really emphatically, don't tell people about this. And Matthew doesn't say the blind men left and remembered Jesus' words and told no one what had happened. He doesn't even say, and the blind men laughed, and they really struggled with themselves, wanting desperately to obey Jesus, and yet somehow it slipped out. No, he says, oh, the blind man went out and told everybody, and his fame spread. And then he adds that in that moment, their blindness returned. Oh, wait, no, he doesn't add that. That's interesting, isn't it? Because the way most people talk about the favor and the grace of Jesus is that he gives it to you freely, and if you obey, you get to keep it. And if you don't, he takes it back. That's the way a lot of people talk about salvation. They say that, yes, it's by grace, 
But <laughs> to paraphrase uh, Ben Franklin, when he was asked, what kind of government do we have when he came out of the Constitutional uh, Convention, he famously quipped, a republic, if you can keep it. A lot of people imagine, like coming out of church, what kind of salvation do you have? By grace, if I can keep it. And yet these men who are made whole, and in a significant way, I know we read it and we think, well, clearly being raised from the dead is, is, is bigger than, than being uh, given sight if you're blind. But interestingly, in the Old Testament, uh, prophets do raise people from the dead, although with difficulty. But there's a thing that is attributed to the power of God as a testimony to the power of the hand of God, and it is the healing of the blind, which is why the healing of the blind gets a sort of precedence here in Scripture that we wouldn't necessarily give it. He heals those men. They go off immediately and disobey the one thing he told them to do. And they do not lose the wholeness that was given to them. There's a lot of pulpits where I wish that fact would be proclaimed this morning. And it won't be. And people will be told that the grace that you have depends on your ability to keep it. But when you feel that way, when you experience that struggle, and you tell yourself that you've lost it, that you're losing it, that it's slipping from your fingers, remember the blind men. They messed up big time. They disobeyed a clear commandment of Christ, but they could still see. That's who Christ is. And he hasn't left you just because you have a hard time staying with him. But the key, the key in those moments of struggle is to keep kneeling. To keep kneeling. To continue to prostrate yourself before him. Continue to trust in his authority. Don't kneel for a little grace and then move on in your own strength. Just keep kneeling. When you're discouraged, go back where you started. Kneel to Jesus. Keep kneeling before him. Live in grace and don't move on from it. Just go back there. Stay at the cross. Trust in him. Because when you're there, kneeling at the foot of the cross, you're where everybody's going to end up in the age to come. Every knee will kneel eventually. All the signs that Jesus is performing here point forward. All the signs recorded point to the Messiah's presence, and the presence of the Messiah is a guarantee that the covenant promises will be fulfilled. And what that means for us is actually better than spiritual wholeness and spiritual life and spiritual sight. What that means for us is actual wholeness, that when he comes again, and when he raises us and restores us and remakes us, we will not be ritually clean. We will be actually clean. We will possess not spiritual life, but everlasting life. After the resurrection, our bodies and our spirits reunited will live before him everlastingly. That's not a metaphor. That's a reality, an everlasting life. And you know what? When he comes again, we'll have something better than spiritual sight. 
we will have actual sight. Paul, when he casts forward at the end of 1 Corinthians 13, the, the, the image, that arresting image that he comes to is face-to-face communion. Like, I will see clearly. I will see fully. I will know fully, even as I have been fully known. We won't just be restored from, from blindness to sight, but we will see him face-to-face. And how do we get there? How do we get to that future? Well, Paul in Philippians 2 famously looks forward to that age to come, and he gives us a glimpse of that age when he says that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess. And if you stopped there, you might think the important thing is the kneeling. The important thing is the gesture. The important thing is that everybody's doing it. But actually, the important thing is what they are confessing. The important thing is the content of that confession. Every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now, the interesting thing about that is, that's a vision of the future, the eschatological age, the end times. That there's a time when every knee shall bow. There's a time when every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. But Jairus and Veronica and those two blind men and Jairus' dead daughter, they did that already. They did that already in the text that we've just seen. If you are in Christ, you've done that already. You have already kneeled before him, already bowed, already confessed that Jesus is Lord. The substance is the same. What they trusted in in faith for their restoration was the same thing that we trust in for our salvation. It is the same thing that all humanity will confess is true before the face of God. Lori, my wife, has been listening to uh, a podcast recently, uh, Tim Keller's Questioning Christianity podcast. And when Lori listens to a podcast, that means Mark also listens to the podcast. Because I buzz around her office like a fly or an annoying insect of some kind, um, So I'm constantly gleaning this stuff. It has an interesting format where in one episode he will give a presentation. This is to an audience of people who are not Christians. And then in the second half, he will take questions from the audience and do his best to answer those questions. And I find the the questions fascinating. One of the questions that he was asked as we were listening this week um, basically had to do with his idea of wholeness. As he was talking about the wholeness that Christians have in Jesus Christ, the listener said, you know, that sounds good. The way you describe what Christians believe and its effects on Christians, that sounds good and attractive. But if that's true, why aren't Christians like that? If that's what Christians possess in Christ, 
why aren't the Christians who I know like that? Why do they not seem to be people who possess this or even know about this? Well, I think it's a good question and a common question. He does a pretty good job answering it, but I'm just going to try to answer it myself. I think the problem here is that we often make a mistake of identification. And sometimes we're guilty of this as believers, and sometimes other people are guilty of it even though we're not. It's the question of identifying with Jesus as opposed to identifying with those he has healed. I said already, we should see ourselves as the ones in need of healing, not as the ones who are doing the healing. All too often, either we come off as people who think they have it all, or other people assume that we must believe that because we're Christians, we have all the answers. And then our lives don't seem to manifest that. As I said, we're still struggling. And people ask themselves, if you have wholeness in Christ, if you have spiritual wholeness, how could you ever struggle? Like, how could you ever have doubts if you've actually experienced the thing that you claim to have? Basically, the objection is the promises of the gospel do sound good. They are attractive, but actual Christians don't seem to be a good advertisement for those things. And I acknowledge that that's true. Even in comparison to the people in Matthew 9, we suffer. Because they did have tangible results that they could show. I mean, Veronica could say, look, you all know, for 12 years I've had this condition. We haven't even been able to hang out because I'm unclean, but not anymore. And now I can enter back into the life of the world. I have something to show for my encounter with Jesus. Jairus' daughter, imagine, like she had mourners, flute players at her funeral, but she's alive. Her friends, their minds must have been blown by that. No one asked her, I mean, you claim Jesus is great, but I mean, I don't see the evidence in your life. Of course they did. Her life was the evidence. Same thing for the blind men. They'd been blind and now they saw. That was the evidence. But what about us? What do we have to show? All too often it feels as if the answer to that is not much. We don't demonstrate the spiritual benefits much. And one way to follow up on that observation would be to say, as your pastor, I need you to start demonstrating these benefits more. Looks bad. We call ourselves grace. We say that we have grace, but people look at your lives, and they don't see a lot of evidence of that grace. And and personally, I I would like, I don't know, our apologetic to be more convincing, and you could help by seeming more gracious, please. That's often what we do, right? If we somehow fall short, then the answer must be to work on ourselves. But again, what if it's by design? What if the whole point is that God isn't choosing for himself a people who can then be a substitute for him, who can then be the example that you need to follow instead of him? What if the people that he's choosing are always going to be a little messed up so that they always have to keep going back to him so that when you come to them, they always have to say, look, look, don't, no, not me. Don't do what I'm doing. Look where I'm looking. Go where I've gone. You won't find wholeness or healing from me, but you'll find it where I'm finding it from him. Don't judge the king by how well we follow him. We came to Jesus because of our uncleanness, not our cleanness. 
because of our lifelessness, not our liveliness, because of our blindness, not our sight, and he's still working on us. That's who we are. We have come some distance, but we've got a long way to go. He is restoring us, but we're not there yet. Don't follow our example, except on one point. Don't copy our lives. Just copy who we're kneeling to. Just do that. Don't try to be like us. Try to be like him, because that's what we're trying to do by his grace. Don't look to us. Look to Jesus, and you will find grace. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.